if you are visiting with us or if, you, if you're new, you, we've been working our way through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, a, a book in the Bible, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to some, a church way back in the day. And we're, we, last week we started part four of this, of this book, and we're, we've called that the, the, the church gathered, right? Because in this part, he's given instructions to what church looks like when we get together. So the kind of the way that should be and the way we should behave whenever we meet together as, as God's people. If you don't know, we are uh, the, the body of Christ. We are or the, the family. We are, are God's children. That's what the church is. And Paul said that because of that, when you get together to worship, when you get together, there's certain ways that you should behave, certain things that you should do and certain things you shouldn't do. So last week, um, we, we looked at how he had some instructions for how men and women relate to each other when we get together. And this week, he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. Maybe you know it as a different name. Maybe you know it as communion. We often in this church talk about communion. Um, and maybe if you're from a, a different background, you might have heard it called the Eucharist. Um, and each of these different names have different focuses. So uh, in the Lord's Supper, like he uses in this passage, the focus is on, uh, the, focus is on the Lord. Communion, uh, the focus is on um, the union we have with each other. And the union we have experience with Jesus as the body of Christ. And the Eucharist, that just means thanksgiving. So uh, that has a focus on celebrating and, and being thankful for what God has done in the death of Jesus. But all these different names, even though they have slightly different focuses, um, it, they all mean the same thing. It's the meal that Jesus gave to his followers. And it consists of the church sharing a loaf of bread like we have here. And a cup of wine, like we have here, in obedience to Jesus, uh, so that we can experience his closeness. That's really, that's really what he's talking about. We remember his death and resurrection and experience closeness with him. And that's what Paul's talking about this morning, as, as you probably picked up on from the, the passage. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, um, and then uh, we'll, we'll dive into this passage. The reason I pray every Sunday before we do this is because... It's really good practice to pray any time before we read the Bible together, really, um, because we are human and we're sinful and uh, we bring our own ideas and our own emphasis into things. And we want to be hearing from God and we want to be good children who listen to our Father. So that's why we pray. So let me pray for us and then we'll move on with, uh, with this passage. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you that you speak to us, your children. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as we hear what you have to say to us this morning, that we would be good children who listen to our Father's voice. And Lord, I pray that we would be uh, changed because of that. Thank you for even already hearing uh, just encouragement of how you are changing people in your church through just studying your word. And, and Lord, I pray for more of that. Um, uh, we need you like we sang. We need you every hour. So, so speak to us this morning, Lord, and let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, this is a passage about eating together. It's a passage about food. And uh, one of my favorite things to do in life is to go out for dinner. Um, genuinely, one of my favorite things to do. Like, I, I actually prefer going out for dinner than getting a present. You know what I mean? If, if, if we had to choose, it was my birthday, don't buy me a present. Let's go out for dinner. So, if anyone wants to take me out for dinner, let's do it. Um, and I don't really get to do that often. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I, I enjoy it. But last month, we got to go to a Michelin star restaurant, me and Haley. Um, it was a gift from someone, and it was amazing. Like, so I think there's like six courses and just amazing wine and the way everything looked and the way they treated you and the textures and the colors and the flavors and the whole thing was just so, so good. But 
My favorite meal ever, the favorite meal I've ever had, was not like that at all. The favorite meal, I, my favorite meal I've ever had wasn't fancy. It wasn't in a restaurant. It didn't even cost very much money. My favorite meal ever was some supermarket bread and cheese and a bottle of cheap wine. That was it, my favorite meal ever. So the question is, compared to that Michelin star restaurant food, which was incredible, what makes some bread and cheese and a cheap bottle of wine from a supermarket my favorite meal ever? Well, that meal, even though it was cheap and, and, and simple, that meal was on honeymoon with my favorite person ever, Haley, in case you're wondering. Um, uh, we were, it, the sun was going down, we were in Paris, we were sitting on the banks of the Seine, and we were just enjoying each other's company, and we had no money, and we were laughing about that, and we were just newly married, and it was perfect. It was the, my favorite ever meal. And I asked Haley the other day, I said, hey, I'm talking about my favorite meal, guess what, it, guess what it is? And she had no idea what I was talking about. She couldn't remember that at all, so there you go. Um, but the significance of a meal is about far more than the food you eat, right? We all know this. It's about the people present. It's about the relationships, relationships with people you love or, or maybe relationship with someone you're fallen in love with or, or, or learning to love or getting to know. Meals are significant and they're rarely just about what we eat and drink. Most nights, my family, we sit down together at the dinner table and most nights the food isn't that spectacular. Haley's out of the room so I can say that. I'm only joking. <laughs> Hope she doesn't listen to it. Don't tell her. Um, the food isn't that spectacular, but as we do that together, day after day, meal after meal, something happens to our family. We grow closer together. We get to know each other better. Our communion with other, one another becomes stronger because meals are about far more than eating and drinking, aren't they? We all know this. I grew up in the countryside, and the kitchen table was where everybody gathered. It wasn't just for mealtimes. It was for cups of tea. It was for doing homework. It was for chatting. It was for meeting the neighbors. It was for everything. The dinner table is more than just a refueling station for our bodies. The dinner table is where bonds are strengthened and where hospitality is offered. The dinner table is where disputes are settled. It's where emotions run free. It's where... We feel the sting of lost loved ones most keenly because meals are about far more than just eating and drinking. That's why I think one of the saddest things that we, we do, and, and we all do it from time to time, is eating alone. Eating alone it hurts. There's something intrinsically lonely about that because meals are about far more than just eating and drinking. And I think that this is why uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, gave us a meal. This act of remember, remembering him needs more than just words, doesn't it? Our meeting place with him needs something tangible, something visceral, something that stirs the imagination by appealing to all of our senses. And what better place to meet him? What better place to meet our Lord and Savior than at a table? with some food and drink because meals are about far more than what we eat and drink. But what happens when we forget the significance of this table? What happens when we forget the significance of this meal so instead of uh, sitting down and feasting with our brother and savior and king, we just grab a quick bite on the way out the door or we scarcely pay him any attention? What happens when we make this meal about us? rather than about him. 
what happens when we bring discord and division to his table. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what was happening in this church in Corinth. They were bringing division to the table. They were making it about themselves and not about him. They weren't thinking about what the bread and the wine represent. We'll come to that later. They were, they were, they were thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about the, the, the unity and the reality of what this meal represents. And for this reason, Paul wants to remind them, he wants to teach them this lesson. And this is kind of the main, the main thrust of what we're going to see this morning. At the Lord's Supper, we come together to meet with Jesus. So we must come to the table with the right attitude towards him and each other. Let me say that again. At the Lord's Supper, we come together to meet with Jesus, so we must come to the table with the right attitude towards him and each other. Now, throughout this passage, uh, he, he, Paul in this passage talks about the Lord's Supper. We use the word communion. Uh, so I, I'm going to probably interchange a little bit as I go through this, uh, but it means the same thing. So the first thing that we see in this passage and, and how it relates to that lesson is that, that in Corinth there was division at the table. And this is a perversion of communion. There was division at the, at the table, a perversion of communion. So listen to what he says again, uh, as Claire read for us in verses 17 to 22. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now remember last time uh, when he, he was pleased that the men, the men and the women were joining together in the worship gathering. And he said, I commend you, I praise for you in that. Here he, does, he can't say that. He's, because when you come together, it is not for the better, for, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes on ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? You despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul's not happy. You can almost, like when you read this, you can hear the anger, can't you? Because for him, mistreating the Lord's Supper is really serious. As far as communion is concerned, he has nothing positive at all to say to them. He can't give them any praise in, at all in regard to how they are doing the Lord's Supper and how they are taking communion. Things are so bad that he tells them that it's not doing them any good. In fact, it's actually doing them harm. Essentially, he's saying, you're getting communion so wrong that it would actually be better for you if you didn't do it at all, if you just stayed at home. And that's pretty harsh, isn't it? So what was so bad about what was going on? Well, when they were coming together to take the Lord's Supper, they were doing it in such a way that made the division between rich and poor really obvious. Corinth, uh, as a society, was a hierarchy with the rich and the powerful at the top and the poor and the weak at the bottom. And, and once again, the Corinthians, what they were doing is they were taking the culture of the society and allowing that to shape their church rather than being counter to the culture that surrounded them. They were using the Lord's Supper as a way to highlight the divisions between them, that highlight the divide between rich and poor, which is the very opposite of what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. Now, after, after this sermon, we're going to take communion together, like we do every Sunday. And most of the time when we do this, we don't have a full meal, right? We have the symbolic meal. 
Sometimes we do it with a full meal, and we've done that before, and we will do it again. But most of the time, we have a symbolic meal. But in the days of the early church, communion was part of this full meal, right? Everyone would get together in somebody's house, and there was a full meal served. There was lots of food. Essentially, from this, it seems like it was a bit of a potluck, that each person was eating his own meal. Maybe you brought your own food with you. And what was happening was that all the wealthier people, they didn't have to go to work, and so they could show up earlier than all the other people who had to go to work. Back in that culture, there was no day off in the week. You worked seven days a week. And so all the working class people and the slaves, they were, they were coming to the gathering after work. There was no Sunday where everyone was off and the church gathered. They probably gathered on a Saturday night or a Sunday night. And by the time all the, 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 the working class and poor people got there, all the rich people had eaten all the food and they had drunk all the wine. And so the poor people had to go without. And it's that which makes Paul mad. Some people have too much, while others don't have enough. The meal that was supposed to symbolize the unity that they have in Jesus was the very thing they were using to highlight the differences among them. They were using this thing which symbolized the unity that we share in Christ to cause division. Uh, a theologian called N.T. Wright, he gives this example of, um, of, of uh, a, group, a large group of friends going to a picnic, Right? And when you get there, we're going to this picnic, and when we get there, we see that there's uh, our, our kind of wealthier friends, and they have, they have these elaborate hampers, uh, and they have like the best wine that money can buy. They have, you know, choice cuts of meat and, you know, the best cheese and all that kind of stuff, and they're drinking the champagne out of the flutes. And then maybe alongside them, there's another family, and they just have a couple of sandwiches, maybe a wee, a wee jam piece and a bottle of water, and they're sharing that between them. Now, if we turned up, and we were saying, these people are friends, but this, this, this doesn't seem right. Now, if that doesn't seem right at a picnic with friends, how much more does it not seem right at the Lord's table? How much more, is there, how much more wrong is this greed and division and lack of thought for others when we're not just friends, but when we're gathered together with brothers and sisters in Christ? Members of our family united through Jesus. Paul is he's about to explain in this letter, and we'll see this um, in chapter 12, that we are all members of one body. We're all members of the body of Christ. And so he's saying, listen, how can some of you get drunk and eat all the food when, when some of you are, are doing without? Is that really an expression of the body of Christ? Does that really represent what Jesus died for? This is such a perversion of the Lord's Supper that Paul actually tells them that they're not really taking the Lord's Supper. Whatever it is you're doing, it's not the Lord's. That's what he's saying. Whatever, what you're doing does not represent the Lord Jesus and the good news of his death. In their division, they had perverted the very thing that was, was supposed to embody their unity. And here's the point. If we're bringing division to the communion table, we're perverting the Lord's Supper. If we're excluding people from sharing uh, with us for whatever reason, we're tainting the very thing that's supposed to bring us together. If you're holding a grudge against one of your brothers or sisters and you come to the Lord's table, you're making a mockery of something sacred. Why? Because meals are about far more than eating and drinking. 
And Paul knows this. And so he goes on to show the Corinthians the severity of what they're doing. And so he goes into this next section of explaining the significance of the communion meal. This is what's wrong. There's division here. And now he wants to show them how that there's not just division at the table, but Jesus is at the table. And this is the purpose of communion. Listen to what he says in verses 23 to 26. He says, "Um, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's Paul's saying, listen, you've missed the point. You're messing this up. Let me tell you why this is so serious. And so he he retells them what happened at the very first communion meal, what happened at the very first Lord's Supper. It was the night before Jesus was crucified. And Jesus sits down with his 12 disciples to take the Passover meal. So the Passover meal, for those of you that aren't Jewish, um, the Passover meal was um, a Jewish tradition which celebrated how God saved his people from, from his judgment and freed them from slavery in Egypt way, way back in the days of Moses. So if you want to read that, go and read the start of the book of Exodus. And so because of that, the Jews would take this meal every year and they would enact reenact and, and, and declare once again that God had saved them from judgment and freed them from slavery. But all of that was actually pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus would ultimately save God's people, not just from local judgment or temporary slavery in Egypt, but through Jesus, God would save his people from eternal judgment and slavery from sin through his death on a cross. So just as in the very first Passover, what happened was an innocent lamb was killed and they took the door and they painted it, they took the blood and they painted it on the, on the door frame. And so whoever was in that household was saved by the blood of the innocent lamb. His, the blood of the innocent lamb was, was used as a symbol of God's mercy and salvation. And just like that, Jesus, the innocent one, was killed, and his blood is applied as a symbol of God's mercy and salvation. This is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walking along, he, he, he declares to all the people around him, he says, look, here comes the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And at his first communion meal with his disciples, Jesus, he holds up the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes a cup of wine and he says that this cup is the new covenant in his blood. This cup of wine was his promise, not just to Jews as, as uh, slaves coming out of Egypt, but it's a promise to all people that when they believe in him, they are safe from God's judgment and belong to him forever. This new covenant, this new promise that is symbolized by the innocent one's blood. And Jesus is making it clear that he's the fulfillment of the Passover, He's the one who saves his people from the judgment of God. He's the one who frees his people from slavery. And he tells his people, he tells us, keep doing this. Keep remembering. And every time you do this, remember the freedom from slavery and the salvation from judgment that that his death means for us. And so the communion meal 
is an act of remembrance. But could it be that there's more going on at this table than just remembering? Well, I think so. See, Christ is present everywhere. That's who, omnipresent. God is present everywhere. But he's present in a special way for his people every time his word is preached and every time his meal is taken. Let me explain. So back in chapter 10, Paul mentions communion, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He talks about the cup of participation. And the word there that's used is this Greek word that means fellowship. It means to partake of one another, essentially. And, and as we saw that a few weeks ago, that in communion, we actually partake of Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, hold on a minute. Paul's just said that Jesus said, said that Jesus said to eat the, the bread as a way of remembering him. Well, yes, he does. We are to remember him when we do that. The bread is just bread, but it doesn't mean that it has no effect, right? My wedding ring is just metal. It's just a piece of metal. It has no, in fact, I got it for free. Somebody found it and I took it. That's a true story, by the way. <laughs> but that doesn't devalue my marriage. This wedding ring is just metal, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't do anything, right? This piece of metal, when it's on my finger, declares to the world, ladies, I'm off the market. That's essentially what it's saying. <laughs> okay? That's what it's saying. It means that I belong to another. It means that, that this, this wedding ring does, does not mean, this wedding ring has no significance except to declare to me and to the world that I belong to another. And so in the same way, the bread and the wine of this meal, the Lord's Supper, can be just bread and wine, but still have amazing effect. Christ isn't present in the bread, but he is present by his spirit in the eating of the bread and in the drinking of the wine. The bread and wine in their own don't mean anything, right? But in the right context, they are a means of communion with Christ through his Holy Spirit. That means when we eat bread and wine in this context, as God's people gather together, it has significant effects. Something happens here. So this means that when we remember the death of Jesus by eating this bread and drinking this wine, Christ is really present with us. Paul calls it the Lord's Supper. And it's the, it is the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's table. And he himself, it's like he's prepared the meal and he's set the table. And he himself invites us to sit with him and eat with him and enjoy his presence. Christ is present with us when we take this meal together. And through that, he gives to us. We feast in him and we receive his comfort and grace and love. I sometimes talk about, I sometimes talk about the church as um, like, a, like halftime in a football match or your sport of choice. So you can come in off the pitch at halftime and you can be 4-0 down and getting an absolute battering, right? Or you might be playing a blinder and be 3-0 up. But either way, when you come in at halftime, when we come in the gathering, it's a bit like we come into the, the, the dressing room and we get instruction and encouragement and correction and nourishment to go back out and continue playing the second half, right? That's what happens when we come together to feast on his word and to feast on him himself. The Lord's Supper does that for the, the, the gathered church. It nourishes our souls through spiritually feasting on Jesus himself. Isn't that an amazing thought? And I love, I love what Paul adds in verse 26. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
In other words, taking communion is preaching the gospel. You proclaim the Lord's death. When you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. We preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other. These symbols don't add anything to the word that's being preached, but they do declare the word to all of our senses. Like, just like my wedding ring, right? The, the wedding ring declares to me and to those around me that I'm married. And taking this, world, this, taking this meal declares to me and to those around me that I'm saved. So when we take communion together, we're telling ourselves and each other, and this is key, this is the nourishment we receive. We take this meal, we're declaring to each other and to ourselves, you are saved. You're saved because Jesus' body was broken for you. You're saved because Jesus' blood was shed for you. You're saved and you're free because Jesus died a horrible, bloody, brutal, traumatic, torturous, agonizing death for you. And please don't go back out into the world without having preached that truth to yourself and to each other. That's the nourishment we receive to go back into the world. Sometimes I think that, um, especially maybe in the West, I don't know, but we're really good in modern times. We, we've, we just, we clean up the cross a lot, don't we? I mean, the, pa- the Passover, the Passover represents actually an animal, its throat being cut, it's blood being drained and it being, it being uh, killed so they could be saved. All the way through then, the people of God reenacted this in some way by the killing of birds and bulls and all kinds of sheep and all kinds of animals. The forgiveness of sins is a messy business. And it was none more or less messy for Jesus. The cross is anything but nice. This is what it meant for Jesus. This is what it meant for us to have this meal, for us to be saved and for us to be free from sin. Jesus was beaten with fists, with sticks. He was whipped until the flesh was hanging off his back. He was stripped naked so that he could burn in the midday sun and so that everyone could see his shame. A crown of thorns was pushed into his scalp They pulled his beard out. Nails hammered through his hands and his feet into a wooden cross. And then he was left to hang there until he either suffocated or bled to death. And when we take this meal together, we reenact that. We reenact the death of Jesus. We remember through doing We declare to ourselves and to each other, Jesus died and he died for me and he died for you. And that's why it's so important. But it's not just a meal to remember and it's not just a meal to meet with Jesus. It's a meal to anticipate as well. And let me explain by this. Jesus says, do this. What does he say? He says, um, Paul says in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do this every week and we're going to keep doing this. The church around the world is going to keep doing this until Jesus comes back. Okay, so in case you didn't know, Jesus is coming back. That's our, that, as our hope, as, our, as Christians, that's our sheer hope. Jesus is coming back. And so when we take this meal, we're, we're anticipating that one day we won't, it won't just be taking this meal. One day it'll be face to face with Jesus. 
a big wedding feast. And he's going to undo all the wrongs that have been done. And he's going to take away all of our pain. And on that day, the one that we've loved for so long, the one that we've followed for so long, the one that we've worshipped for so long, the one that we've longed for and trusted for so long, on that day, we'll finally sit down with him face to face. And we'll just sit and feast and enjoy just being with him. Being with our Jesus. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, the Lord himself is here. In a wee room like this, on kind of a back street off the Omer Road of Belfast, I mean, who knew? Jesus is here. This is why I invite your friends to church. Why? Because Jesus is here. It's not just a past memory. It's not just a future anticipation. Jesus is at the table. And this is the purpose of communion. It's not just something we do because a meal is about far more than eating and drinking. So you can see why Paul was annoyed when they were, when they were mistreating the Lord's Supper, can't you? Because that's what it means. He tells them, this is, you're missing the point. Look at what it means. No wonder he's annoyed at it. They're, 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 they're undoing all that Jesus has done. Jesus has died a horrible death so they could be united as one, and they're, and they're tearing that work down. And so because of that, we need to come to the table with the right attitude and in the right way. But first, and our third lesson is that we need to examine ourselves. So this is our third lesson is self at the table, our preparation for communion. So he goes on to this in verse 27, and he says, Whoever therefore, so therefore, because of all that significance I've just told you about, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And that sounds pretty serious, right? Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Or fallen asleep. In the Greek he says fallen asleep, which means he's talking to Christians. This is how Paul describes when Christians die. They fall asleep. But if we judged or if we examined ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that, when, so that we may, be, may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, pretty confusing little paragraph and actually pretty somber when you think about it. We don't really like talking about judgment and, and guilt, do we? No one really likes to think of those things. But Paul's saying, that, listen, if you, are, if you do communion in the wrong way, if you're taking it lightly, if you're bringing division, if you're getting drunk, if you're doing all these things, you're using it as a way to highlight the differences among you, God's going to discipline you for that. Because of what this meal represents, God takes it seriously, and you should too. This means that this is what he means, that we're guilty of concerning the body and blood of the Lord because of what it represents. The bread is not just bread and the wine is not just wine. They represent the body and blood. And, and, and we're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord if we defile it. If we, by doing this, we actually defile and downplay the significance of Christ's death if we come to this table without, uh, in, in the wrong attitude, without treating it seriously, if we come in division with one another. We're taken away from what Jesus has done for us. You're acting like Jesus isn't even present. Because if you realize that Jesus is present, if you realize what this actually means, then you wouldn't behave in this way. And this is so important to the church. 
Because this is so important to the church that God will discipline you because of it. It's so important to the church that God will actually discipline his children if we get it wrong. Just like any good parent disciplines their kids when they do something wrong. And Paul says, listen, that's why some of you are sick and dying. This is such a serious thing that they're actually getting sick and dying because they're mistreating the Lord's meal. Now, that's quite a weird thing for us to hear. It's startling. But the truth is, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. The Lord disciplines his loved ones. And sometimes, one of the ways that he does that is by bringing sickness. Now, hold your horses. This does not mean that anytime you get sick, that is because there's some sin in your life and you're doing something wrong. Sometimes you just get sick. I'm not saying anything about coronavirus. That's not what I'm saying at all. And it also doesn't mean that anytime that like, your mate coughs, that you're like, what have you done? Have you been up to something? Like That's not what this is about. But what this does mean is that if we are sinning and if we're aware that we're sinning, if we're doing something wrong, we know we're doing something wrong, and we keep on doing it anyway, we're walking in danger of God bringing his discipline on us. Just in the same way, if Finley does something that he knows that he's not supposed to do, he's walking in danger of my discipline being on him. It's God's way that these guys getting sick was God's way of of, of telling them that they need to stop what they're doing. In this case here, he's saying, hey, the Lord's Supper is really important. So stop what you're doing and treat it with respect and do it in love for one another and do it in unity. And so Paul says, if we don't want to be under God's discipline, we need to examine ourselves in verse 28. And in verse 29, he says, we need to discern the body. And by saying these two things, Paul is painting for us a picture of of the attitude of our hearts when we come to take communion. Firstly, discern the body. Well, Paul is talking about our attitude to the church, to each other. Paul often talks about the body as as the church, as the body of Christ. So he said, you need to to discern the body. You need to consider the church. You need to consider one another in all of this. Because if we're bringing uh, division and disunity to the Lord's meal, it's actually a powerful statement that we're tearing apart Jesus' body. The presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper is, is both by his spirit, but, but also his presence is because we, his body, are coming together. And so we need to think about one another when we come to the Lord's table. Secondly, then, he says, let each person examine themselves. This means that before we come to the table, we need to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, is there anyone in the church that I have disunity with? That's what he's saying. Is there anything in my heart, any attitude in my heart, or any problem I have that is causing division? And if the answer is yes, then don't take communion. Go and sort that out. If there's anyone in the body of Christ that you have disunity with, go and sort that out before you come to the table. It means that that each one of us needs to not take this lightly. We can't come to this table lightly. So let me ask you, do we come to the table out of habit? Or are we coming out of devotion to the death of Jesus? Are we coming to the table out of ritual? Or are we coming out of our awareness of our need of the gospel? Are we coming to the table because other people expect us to? Or are we coming because Jesus invites us to? These are important questions to ask because 
this meal is about far more than eating and drinking. And sometimes, I know, like sometimes this passage has been used to condemn people and to shame people. And, and some people have been made to feel so guilty and scared by this that they, they're put off taking communion. They don't want to take communion. People have been made to feel that they shouldn't take communion if, if well, I haven't felt really close to God recently. Or, or I haven't been really obedient to Jesus this week. Or I haven't prayed all in a wee while, so I shouldn't take this meal. Or, or I'm not a very mature Christian. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul doesn't talk about unworthy people taking communion. He talk, t- talks about taking communion in an unworthy manner. Because the point is, we're all unworthy, Right? We're all unworthy. None of us are worthy to approach Jesus. But by his grace, he makes us worthy. Because, and this is the great thing, this is the travesty of the whole thing. At the table, we're all equal because we're all just dependent on the death of Jesus. That's it. That's why it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. None of those things matter because when we come to this, We're all equal because we're just saying, Jesus, I have nothing but your death. That's all I have. We're all equal in this. And so if your faith is weak or your faith is strong, come to the table. If you feel far away from God or if you feel close to God, come to the table. If you're rich or you're poor, come to the table. None of those things matter because we're all equal. We're all just relying on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Tim Chester, one of my teachers, he, he, he's actually just written a book about baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. And, and he, says, he says, a lack of faith does not invalidate the sacraments. In other words, we respond in faith to Jesus, but the power and significance of the bread and wine is not dependent on the quality of our faith. You don't have to be good enough to come to the table. That's not the gospel. You just have to be relying on the fact that Jesus is good enough, right? Lord, I, I know I'm not good enough, but I'm just trusting in your death. And I'm living in a way that, that shows that I believe that we're all in this together. We're all equal in this. Then come to the table. So examining ourselves before we take communion isn't about seeing if we're good enough. It's about seeing if there's any disunity and division among us. And if there is, we need to go and say sorry and get back into unity. And then come to the table as equals, just relying on the blood of Jesus. And that's our last point for this morning, unity at the table. How we, the right practice of communion. In unity, we do communion in the right way. Listen to these last two verses. Um, Verses 33 and 34. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If any was hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I don't like it when Paul says that. I wouldn't like to be receiving that from Paul. See the other stuff? I'm going to talk to you in person about that. Like That's like a just wait till your dad gets home kind of thing, isn't it? Um, but here's Paul's instructions. When, when, when the church comes together, when you get, come together to take the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. See, in one sense, in the Corinthian context, waiting for each other was actually about waiting. It was a big big deal. It was a sign of unity because the rich folks, well, they would say, actually, you know what? Our brothers and sisters, they're in different positions. We're going to wait until they arrive, and we're going to share what we have together. 
so that no one gets drunk and no one goes without. No one has too much and no one has too little. But in another sense, the Greek word for wait actually means to welcome or to accept. And when some were eating all the food and drinking all the wine, they weren't welcoming each other. They weren't accepting each other. They were saying that there was no place for the poor people among them. And Paul says, listen, if you can't do this in the right way, just eat at home before you come to the gathering. Now, some people actually say this is when, uh, you know, uh, communion meal, the Lord's Supper, started to move from like a full meal to, to a symbolic meal. But, but either way, the message is still the same. We are one in Christ, and there should be no division among us when we come to the Lord's table. We can't claim to be honoring the Lord and his death at the communion table while at the same time discriminating against our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. And when we wait for one another, we put the needs of others before our, before our own because Christ in his death has put our needs before his. Don Carson says, the church is made up of natural enemies. And what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Isn't that amazing? Now, we have nothing in common except Jesus. That's the thing that, that's the thing that, that brings us together. That's, and so that should be the focus of our gathering. That should be the point of what we do when we come to the table. And this is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus has died to save us from, from God's judgment and to free us from slavery to sin. And we are united together in him. This meal is enacting the gospel. It's enacting the death of Jesus, the very thing that brings us unity. So we don't come to the table trying for perfection. We come relying on his perfection. That's it. And so today, we're going to share this meal together. So I want to encourage you to don't take it lightly. Literally, don't take it lightly. Don't come here in division and disunity. If there's a problem between you, if you have a problem between you and another brother or sister, go and sort that out. Don't come to the table today. Go and sort that out and then come to the table. Ideally, come to the table together. And don't come up here thinking about what's for lunch. And don't come up here looking at what other people are wearing. And don't come up here thinking about the football later. Think upon the Lord. Remember the cross. Rem consider what it took to forgive our sin. Anticipate Jesus' return. Imagine that. We come to this table thinking, Jesus, I can't wait to sit down and eat with you face to face. Feast your soul on him. Come and have communion with Jesus. He's inviting you to his table. Come in communion with one another. I often say that. I often say, you know, don't come on your own. Like, come with people in your MC. Come with your friends. Come together and serve one another and share one another and hear these words spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, and I don't know you, I don't, some of you may not be, then you can be free right now. You can be saved right now. 
All you have to do is just simply believe that Jesus died for you, that what this bread and wine represents was for you. That his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you can be saved and so that you can be free and have communion with his people and with him. All you have to do is believe it. Just say in your heart, Jesus, I'm turning my back on relying on everything else. I believe that you died for me and I'm relying on you from now on. And that's it. And if you believe in Jesus, then come to the table because you're part of his family and this is for you. And this is good news for all of us. So, um, Caitlin and Tom are going to come back up now and I'm going to pray but let, let's come to the table this morning it, it's Jesus' table he set the table he invites us to the table but let's come in unity let's come as one we are one body and let's come and look back to Jesus' death and let's come and look forward to Jesus coming again and let's come and meet with Jesus himself because he is present here with us because meals are about far more than just eating and drinking So let me pray for us.